Hello and welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We are your guests today, Ben Heckendorn and Chris Kraft. And we are your hosts, Parker Dillman and Stephen Craig. This is episode number 75. Hey listeners, if you enjoy the Macrofab Engineering Podcast, please let others know about us. Tell your coworkers, your friends, family, loved ones, and share it on social media at Macrofab or follow us on Facebook. At some point during the show, we're going to announce a secret code word. If you email us the code word and your address, we'll send you some cool Macrofab swag. The email address is podcast at macrofab.com. So cool. Um, so this week, yeah, we have Ben Heckendorn and Chris Kraft. Do you all want to introduce yourselves? Do we have to? Yeah, you have to. <laughs> okay, well, I'm Ben Heckendorn, a.k.a. Ben Heck. I'm the host of Element 14's The Ben Heck Show, which is a weekly electronics show that we have and uh, we use it to support the Elma 14 community we build cool things and talk about engineering and you know basically with a emphasis on learning i was also a guest star on mep macrofab engineering podcast <gasps> i figured it out episode number 23 <laughs> he's reading his own crib notes yes <laughs> but I, I but i changed like the uh, you know it's like we becomes i and yeah on the fly and I'm Chris Kraft. I'm a long-time uh, tinkerer, and uh, I've been doing 3D printing stuff since around 2009. And yeah, like when you made that first printer. Yes, and occasionally help out folks with their coding projects as my day job involves software engineering for the financial services industry. So are you like Batman? Like you have one job during the day, but then at night you put on like a mask and you're like, I'm Codeman. Does that happen? Pretty close, but more like put on comfortable shorts and right. a T-shirt. <laughs> Not like a, a rubber latex bat suit? Yeah, that would yeah. get a little it's warm. Just, it's, like, it's like the bat symbol in the sky is just sweatpants. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, no, I, was thinking, I was thinking more of like, it's like the dollar symbol, which is like when you log into Unix, it's... You know, your username and the dollar symbol. <laughs> yeah. for the well, here, That's like, we need code help. <laughs> if you have, like, rubber latex leggings, like, how many times can you urinate into them before they swell up to be too large? Right? It depends on how they're designed. <laughs> and is there, like, a I dick? I don't even right? know. <laughs> I don't even know is what Is there a say. dick hole router <laughs> that <laughs> equally puts the urine into each leg so they don't, like, fill up, you know, non-symmetrically? <laughs> That's what they had in Dune, you know, and then the body movement recycled. Wait, it. which which Dune? The the movie, book? the movie. The well, they were in the movie. book. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I think they would just catheter, like put a catheter in it, like a Batman catheter. Yeah. <laughs> it's a bath catheter. Bat cath. It's not the catheter Gotham City deserves. <laughs> it's the one they need. <laughs> <laughs> well. So, <laughs> so the reason why Ben and and Chris are down here is we're going fishing right now. Yeah, you guys do this on a uh, yearly basis, right? Yeah. So usually we go up to Wisconsin up up north, and that's actually the last time Ben was on the show, episode twenty three. Um, we actually did a remote podcast where I was up there drinking beer and on the edge of the lake doing a podcast. And this time we decided to have the uh, fishing trip here in Galveston. And so they're down here this time. Cool. So uh, is it just for fishing, just for hanging out? Just for hanging out, fishing, um, hacking electronics ends <laughs> up happening. Yeah. This is actually, I, I think, like the first full day we were down in Galveston, all we did was 
be on our computer working on like Raspberry Pi three code. So, so yeah. Oh yeah. Remember that board where we had the bet on? Oh yeah. You owe well, me a six pack of beer, by the way. Okay, that's that. That was actually in the show notes because <laughs> so the, yeah, this was this was uh, your your Raspberry Pi three compute module. Yeah, we had a bet going that. It would not work on the first go round. Yeah. Uh, well, if that was my bet, yep. it would not work. And yours, and yeah, that so, would, so yeah. But, but, I, but I need I need confirmation from from Chris and Ben because I because I don't necessarily have the right to trust you. There on this was one. well, there was one issue. Oh, okay. W- but was it an issue with the board? Uh, not would, necessarily. Okay. There was a line where Parker wasn't sure if it be if it should be pulled high or pulled low. So. You 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 basically you had macrofab populate both resistors, so it was being pulled high and low, basically voltage divider pulled mid. Yeah, yes, it was exactly. pulled mid, <laughs> and it, it worked. it's like digital. I don't know what's going on. It worked, but it was causing <laughs> intermittent results. Um, so the solution was to take a jackknife and basically pop like one knock off. off one of the resistors. Yeah, so I, I okay, that's call that, it I'll, I'll admit that's not an issue. Yeah, it was actually yeah. how we found out that was a problem is. Basically, it was on the LVDS chip, um, on the FB pin of that chip. I can't remember what that pin does. I think it basically selects whether or not it's um, your, your clock signal is active high or active low. Mm. And so it was probably floating in between there, which was causing lots of issues. I mean, the image came up. It just had like some like vert- uh, horizontal synchronization issues. Mm. Yeah. So it worked, but once he knocked that off, then it became perfect. So but, yeah, like I was touching the board around that area. Mm-hmm. And it would affect the signal, and then eventually I put a um, a heat sink. I, I put a heat sink on it, and then grounded the heat sink, and that like almost cleared up the screen. Yep. Huh. And then I was like, "Huh, I guess I should just take a look at the schematic." And I took took a look, and I'm like, "Oh, I'm pulling this pin high and low, so it's like 1.5 volts on the 3.3 volt line, right? So yeah. floating around the threshold, and your finger was adding capacitance, capacitance, yep. and knocking it down. Yeah. And yeah, so I actually took a yeah a little tiny uh, screwdriver and just went because we didn't have a soldering iron at the time, and the uh, audio worked as well. We tested that what yesterday. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I would call it success. So even with the display kind of funky, it booted, which is a big deal, yep. and we were able to SSH into it remotely, so all that functionality, the OS was working, I'd call it a success. Yeah, even when the screen was funky, I mean, the text was sort of, re- you know, legible. Mm. Yeah. Okay, bad. I concede. Uh, yeah. you, you've, you've earned yourself a six-pack, Barker. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I was impressed with your ability to put that board together, and what we're going to do is we're going to take that board and bodge it onto our existing boards to make a you know, approximation of what the next system will be. Yeah, so he's talking about bodging it onto the current pin heck. So right now we use a parallax propeller to do audio video in the pinball machines. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to basically rip off the propeller and then bodge the Raspberry Pi compute module onto it. You're going to dead bug a whole board onto another board? Yes, with lots of hot glue. It's going to be gloriously awful. Yeah, yeah. that sounds terrible. Yeah, we'll definitely post pictures when Ben gets that done in probably, what, two weeks? Uh, no, I'll probably do it next weekend. There we go. How how many how many wires is that? Is that every pin on the no, on the it's, prop? It's probably going to be no. It should just be the communication because there's a bug in my microphone. What we're talking about doing <laughs> is basically having the um, UART three from the PIC thirty two going over to the propeller. I'm sorry. There's no get out of there, bug. Christ. You know the bug. You know it, 
Me blowing the bug off the microphone is causing more of an error than the bug being on the yeah, microphone. Especially since we'd never edit this. Right. Yeah, so keep talking. <laughs> anyway, so right, right now we have the parallax propeller and it receives, you know, spy commands from the PIC-32. And what we're going to do is we're going to remove the propeller and put the pie in its place and it will receive UART, uh, UART commands from the PIC-32 instead. Uh, yeah, so it should be a pretty easy bodge job. Okay, and, and, and with that kind of bodge, you can still make it look a little pretty. You know, if, if it had like a whole bunch of wires coming off it, yeah. it automatically looks bad. Well, I'm, I'm pretty good at wiring. I mean, I'm, I could make a, you know, a lot of wiring look nice, but Lots in this case, I don't think I really have to. Lots of hot glue. I mean, I've seen some pretty awful pinball bodge jobs. You know, it's really, like... You have to think about the physicality of the wire and the memory of the metal to, like, know how everything's going to bend. Yeah. Like, it doesn't have to look awful if you put some time into it. Oh, well, sure. Yeah. But it's just care. most of the time people don't put I time really into don't it. care how it looks, just how it works. Right. Right. Well, cool. So you guys are doing this as a, uh, a stepping stone to the next update for the uh, pinball system, right? Correct. So talk about that. What's, what's up with that? What's new? What's known the what, oh, what what the pinball system? Well, what's changing? Oh, I get basically upgrading the because right now we do what one twenty eight by thirty two, no sixty four one twenty eight by thirty two or one twenty eight by sixty four color dots for yeah. Rob Zombie Dominoes and the Jetsons, which yeah. is kind of a historical standard. At least thirty two by one twenty eight was always the. Yeah, which MGC were we at where we figured out how we could do that? Right, was it two years ago or three years ago? Uh, for what? For the Rob 64? Zombie, because we realized two years ago we didn't have enough RAM on the propeller. But if we use the FPGA as a double buffer, yeah, we could get away with it. Yeah. So basically, in the current system, is the parallax propeller puts shoots all the data because the parallax propeller is not fast enough to run the display fast enough, and so it shoots all the image data over to the FPGA, and the FPGA is fast enough to run the display. So I think that the Parallax Propeller probably updates at what? 15 FPS? 30. 30 FPS? Yeah. And it runs the display at, at 60. Yes. Yeah. That's so correct. the actual image is 30 FPS, but yeah. You have to run the screen at 60 FPS or you get like weird hey, artifacts. You can underclock it. But. Yeah, we were having issues when we did that though. But the, the whole idea of like dots goes back to the first gas plasma displays that they had on the yeah, the VFDs. I yeah. like dots. You know, it's kind of, it's an impression of what you're supposed to see, not a literal display of it. Oh, this is, he, Ben doesn't like HD displays. I don't. Oh, Ben's good. Yeah, artsy. What? <laughs> Never mind. No, I, I, I It's, that's, it's uh, not arty. It's, um, it's costy. It's like, it costs a lot of money costy. to create all those displays. Costy. Yeah. There well, is an and, appeal. But it's classic, too. It's what you're used to, right? There, there's a certain appeal, you know, I mean, it, like if you look at the popularity of of um, pixel graphics today, yeah, you know, there's a subset of fans who would say they would prefer pixel graphics to some super HD, you know, rendered reality of of um, real life. Yeah, for sure. It's like when you see the poster for Chevy Chase in that National Lampoon's Vacation movie. He's got all the muscles bulging out, right? And he's like holding something in the air. It's like. Chevy Chase doesn't look like that, but the artist's interpretation makes him look like a superhero. Yeah. And when you have animation or dots, you can have the same thing where it's your artistic interpretation of what something is, not what a camera literally films. 
It's the same reason why people like hand-drawn art on pinball machines. Like, you know, it's like, I don't want to see a picture of Steven Tyler. He's like 75 years old. But here's a drawing <laughs> of how he looked in the 70s. Yeah. And people accept that. Or you can exaggerate his mouth and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. You can you you can use the aspects of animation, cartoons, you know, hand-drawn animation to accept. Or like the, the Metallica game. Like, they all have giant feet and, like, huge heads. And people like that because it's, it's um, you know, you're... It's an artist's interpretation rather than here's a photo of a 70-year-old rock star. <laughs> and speaking of the dots, um, Chris actually does some of the software for the dots at Spooky. Yeah. Basically, well, not really the dots themselves, but no, the, the converter. The converter. I wrote the software we use to take uh, video files, slice them into individual bitmaps for each scene of yep. the video, and then take those individual bitmaps and basically down convert them based on a set of rules that Ben gave me into individual dots. Uh, what did you call it? The uh, color destruction. Yeah, program? color destruction algorithm or something. Yeah, because the <laughs> it's kind of like that that, that built-in mode that the uh, SNES had, where it did like mosaics, where it 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 down resolution. Oh, I hated way. that mode, and every game used it. Yeah, every game used oh, it. It's like why. Ugh, I hated that because like, ooh, instead of like fading to black or fading to white, it's like let's fade to pixels. It's like why did it was sorry? Just, it was flashy. <sighs> it was also probably easy from a development standpoint. I assume the hardware had some you know rendering facility API in there that they could just call it and and have it show up in their game without having to actually write the code. It's like the same thing with Mode Seven. Most of it's when they that was the scaling of pixels and uh, well, it could, sprites. it could only no, it could Super Nintendo could not scale sprites, it could only scale a background, uh, okay, tile. Fun fact, right? Right, in fact, um, Castlevania got away with that with one of the one of the end bosses or no, one of the bosses you fight is actually a background, yeah, they wanted the him to scale monster. and spin yeah. around. Uh, but because of that, he covers up certain textures. Like uh, I think it's 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 something about like the points or something like that up at the top of the screen. He kind of covers up because of that because they had to use a trick to get around it. Yeah. Mm. So like there, were, I think there were four. You're actually, you're actually talking to like a Castlevania expert. There were four. Oh, yeah. there, <laughs> I, there, we there were four layers on the Super Nintendo. Yeah. And you could only mode seven scale or rotate or planar out those layers. You could not actually scale sprites. Right. So, like in uh, Contra, the Alien Wars, like when the ship comes at you, yeah. or the the, uh, the airplane comes at you and drops the bombs, the airplane is a uh, static background layer that's being manipulated in such a way to appear as a sprite. Gotcha. Oh, that's what they must be doing at Super Metroid at the very beginning with Samus's ship just like flying into the space colon. <laughs> the space colon, yeah. Or or with uh, when uh, when you first fight Ripley. And and he flies like at, directly at the yeah. screen because he yeah that's right because he doesn't actually move like he doesn't flap wings or anything he's just kind of he flies forward in a way and rotates a little bit yeah yeah yep that makes sense okay cool well there's a discussion on mode seven join <laughs> <Yeah>. us next time <laughs> <laughs> but okay so back to the dots are you guys using like are you guys sending HD imagery and then downgrading it effectively into dots? That's how it currently works. Yeah. So they, they will do the, like David Van Ness, who's the dot guy here in Houston, he'll do 
the the video and and animations and stuff at a higher resolution, mm-hmm. and then basically Chris actually is, no, it's all rendered at one twenty eight. Oh, so it is then. or sixty four. Yeah, and so Chris is basically just destroying the the bit. Well, see what happens is <laughs> if you render graphics at high resolution and then down you know down sample them to the pinball resolution. You don't know or have any control over what edges you might lose, mm-hmm. but if you actually, you can actually go into Adobe uh, After Effects and say, "I would like to create a 128 by 64 composition," and it'll work. But when you make it at that precise resolution, you know exactly what you're getting, even though it kind of looks like crap. <laughs> that's, what, that's what we use for Rob Zombie and uh, Dominoes and Jetsons, and uh, I guess we're going to HD in the future. Although I don't totally agree with it and part of the problem with the color or the part that i call the color destruction whatever it was the the problem i noticed was the the algorithm we're using to kind of take an 8-bit color and and um break it down so that we could represent it with the bits we had available we could never get back to the color that it was originally Mm. and yeah so you, you, you could never get a pure white Output or a pure black, it it would not quite get there. They get a um, pure, pure black because it's all zeros, right? But I'm pretty sure by the time the math was done, y- y- you would but never get back. You're to right it. about the pure white though. Yeah, you can't get back to it because you're like if you have to take two twenty uh, two fifty five two five two five of like RGB and you divide it by because we were dividing it down to three bits, right? So you're taking an eight bit color value, dividing it because. Okay, the um, like the Rob Zombie game or any of the ones we have right now, it's eight bit color. Mm-hmm. So you have three bits of R, red, three bits of green, and then two bits of blue. And they weighed it in that way because the human eye is less sensitive to blue than it is green or red. Mm-hmm. So that's why they knock off blue first. Same thing if you have like sixteen bit color, it's five bits of red, six bits of green, five bits of blue. Mm-hmm. Because you know humans evolved to see dinosaurs or whatever out the corner of their eye, like in the jungle. <laughs> so our eyes are more sensitive to the color green because of you know the the jungle. So the T Rex was actually green. Yeah, and it's like clever girl in like caveman language. Ooga <laughs> <laughs> So yeah. So, so if you take what you do is you're like okay, how do I divide down two fifty five into a three bit number, which would be zero to seven. And it's never even, which means if you multiply it back up, you never get back to full white, 245. Right. right. You're always going to be a little bit less. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But it was a hack that did what it needed to for the time that we were doing it. But at the same time, if you're, okay, you're playing pinball, you gotta, you're got you getting bombarded with noise, you're focused on, on the ball, you're not sitting there you know, contemplating the color depth of a S- dot Someone who is doing really well at pinball has no idea what their score even is. Yeah, they, yeah, there we go. Yeah, there we go. Let alone the color depth of the screen. Right. Yes, exactly. Right. Yeah. Oh, is and, that display actually 1080p or is it 720? Oh, my yeah. God. It's and 16 bits per pixel, not 24. I'm going to write my congressman. <laughs> the, the, only reason why, woman. the only reason why it mattered to me was uh, as part of my software, because I didn't have access to one of the dot displays that, that they were using, ah. and I was never sure if it was working right, so I wrote a component into my converter that would simulate the display. Ah. But then uh, then I always had the question of does the simulation match the reality of what it was? So I was trying to convert 
the down converted data back into visual data, and I was never sure what I was actually producing matched reality. Yeah, it was close enough. Although, if you think about it, America's Most Haunted, it's the four-bit monochromatic display. Mm. It actually has more shades of color. More, It has more shades of luminance right. than Rob Zombie, because Rob Zombie, nothing can ever have more than uh, eight shades of luminance. So it's like, yeah, it's twice. Because, yeah, you're talking about four bits versus uh, three bits. Because uh, in America's Most Haunted, um, we had... Uh, what was how that work? We had... 2K of memory, and each pixel, or each pixel is defined as a nibble, so one byte contained two pixels. So it's four bits per pixel, which is 16 bits of, you know, shading. Uh, yeah, so it was a... It, yeah. We kind of went backwards in that sense. Like yeah. Shading is worse. Because as Ben said, monochromatic, it was green, basically, just yeah. green pixels, mm -hmm. but 16 shades of green. Right, right. Yep. Intensity. Yeah. yeah, and actually, was it uh, America's Most Haunted actually won best? Was it best art or best color or dots at a recent? <sighs> no, no, no. One best DMD game. There at you go. Gaming Classic. What What does that mean? I don't even know what that means. I think it's so. <laughs> well, all DM the DMD games that were there with dot matrix display. Yeah. So like the Congo I have is a DMD game. Oh, okay. But yeah. the space shuttle is not. That's a old uh, seven segment this uh, game, solid state. Sure. And so. The Congo would be a DMD game, so his game won best DMD game at Midwest Gaming Classic. I see, cool. So, okay, so uh, so far we've we've got three people in the room here that all kind of do spooky stuff, and then you also mentioned David Van Es, which is here in Houston. Yep. He also does spooky stuff. So, real quick, just give the listeners uh, a, an overview of what do you guys do for Spooky Pin? But like, what is your roles? So I do the hardware design. Yeah, at Spooky. Like electronics, right? Ben, uh, everything. It sounds like it, yeah. It sounds like an, like an overall. Well, yeah. I, I had the the basic system idea that I breadboarded, and then Parker, you know, took that over and made it into a real system. Um, I did the America's Most Haunted game. I designed it, and then I also I don't know. I, I do a lot of things. I'm working on another game right now. Yeah. Okay, so jack of all trades in this in the spooky world. Well, the pinwheel. Kind of, world. yeah. Okay. I drew the blood streaks on Rob Zombie on the playfield. Cool. Because it needed something. Yeah, I'm more just a friend of the firm. I I help out when someone else needs help. But well, you're helping us with this pie stuff. Correct. Yes. Raspberry pie, not the kind you eat. Not or pecan or pumpkin. Three point one four. He he's Doctor Dots, right? Well, well, he does the he did the converter. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. The original oh, David Van S would be Doctor Dots. Yeah, yes. definitely. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Just because it gets it, it gets confusing. There's a lot of there's a there's well, it well, seems to be like a whole like army of of <laughs> hackers and army. engineers and and engineers. Working yeah, it's on. a very small army, but it's yeah. more like it's more like a a platoon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> squad. Squad yeah. is what I would say. Yeah, a squad. Yeah. yeah. Is a platoon larger than a squad? Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I wasn't in the military, I don't know. So uh so this this Raspberry Pi compute module mm -hmm. will eventually be integrated directly into the Pinhex system. Correct. Right? Yeah, we're ripping the propeller out cuz right now the propeller is the audio video processor. We're removing it and putting the Raspberry Pi 3 Compute Module Lite Edition, which does not have eMMC 
Only uh, 90 calories. <laughs> Zero carbs. Zero carbs. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> anyway, we're ripping out the propeller and putting the Raspberry Pi compute module in its place, which would actually be a cost reduction because right now we have that FPGA, which does the color dot conversion for us. Right? The FPGA yep, the, board? The, the chroma color. Chroma color, yeah. Yeah, yeah what do you sound like? 50 or 60 bucks on one of those? Yeah, that's about there. Because here's the weird thing. Like, you have something like, okay, America's Most Haunted, we had a... Uh, a green dot matrix display, right? Mm-hmm. Those were like $170 from XPIN. Mm-hmm. And so we're like, oh, well, you know what? If we get a $50 LCD from China and pair it with a $50 FPGA board to draw simulated dots, that's 100 bucks. So we save 70 bucks. So at the time, we're like, we're saving money by doing this, like with Rob Zombie. Mm. But then we're like, oh, my God, this FPGA board is so expensive. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, what if we had... Twenty three fifty for the pie plus the sodium socket and the other accoutrements it needs. Uh, it's like you know, as long as that's under fifty bucks, it's basically thirty dollars rolled in. Okay, so we're basically saving twenty bucks because we we still have the LCD screen. Yep. But we're removing the fifty dollars from the FPGA and spending thirty dollars on the Raspberry Pi, and that's a twenty dollars savings. And if you're doing like 300, 500 games, that really adds up fast. You're oh, talking yeah. about like. You know, send your kids to college kind of money. Right, right. Or well, hire community college. What? <laughs> community <laughs> college. <laughs> okay, yeah, you won't be sending your kids to Harvard with that. Sure. Well, okay, so uh, what's uh, so you've got your compute module, and you guys were fishing and working on compute modules yeah. this week. Well, during the day, not at the same time. Module. No, okay, not at the same. Okay. And then at night, go fishing. So that's all working well. Uh, and and do you guys are you at the point where you're thumbs up on the schematic, ready to go towards next board revision? Well, you guys had a bet going on this board. Maybe you should talk about that. Yeah, oh, yeah, I won the bet. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I owe Parker a six pack of beer for yeah. uh, for him having a board that works flawlessly. Yeah, I actually have a, I have a video. I have a video. Mostly. I have a video of it playing audio and video over the screen with no glitches. The regulator gets pretty hot. Yeah, it I'll does. Say. It does. So well, it can't play. It can't play audio for too long. Yeah. The uh, the problem with that is the five volt line. That's that regulator, Chris. Gets a little too hot because the twelve volts come in, and twelve volts go to the screen for the backlight, mm. and then the rest of the power basically goes through the five volt line because then after the five volt line, it has to drop down to three point three volts. Has to drop down to two point five, then one point two eight volts. So all the logic is being regulated through the 5-volt regulator. Yeah, and the reason why I had to do that was a lot of LDOs that go to the lower voltage, LDO is low dropout um, regulator, mm-hmm. um, they don't have a really high tolerance for voltage. And so a lot of them are only, they can only go up to like 6 volts. And so you have to put them after the 5-volt. And I put a pretty beefy 5-volt regulator on it. Um, they actually can do 3 amps, which is well under... Uh, the uh, power consumption of the board, but it still has to dump, you know, 12 minus 5 times 1 amp, uh, 7 watts, into, like, 1 square inch <laughs> of the board. You could always just put a, a buck switcher. Could, but I was trying to design this thing as fast as possible and get yeah. the turn. When we slap it onto the existing system, we can just use the 5-volt rail coming off of the power supply. Exactly. Right. So it will actually have, like... Okay, so there's no no use in getting a switcher and designing all that in. It no. gets pretty warm, though. I mean, it's definitely... It has a heat sink on it now, though. It's another effing bug on me. God damn it. <laughs> yeah, so it does have a, a, a heat sink on it, which keeps it cool enough. 
Uh, Boy. Seven wants is a lot in a regulator. Yeah. I sure love fidget spinners. So we where were does at ever the, come from? So we actually were at, we were at the Battleship Texas earlier today. Yeah. And Ben bought a fidget spinner. Can you hear it? It sounds like a bug. <laughs> I'm I'm sh- I'm sure that's picking it up loud and clear. <laughs> awesome. So I guess that would be a good segue into our next topic, which is 3D printers and the history of them. Yes. They should make a fidget spinner fan, although it would have air resistance, which means it wouldn't spin as long. What, what do you mean? What do you mean by a fan? Like a fan that looks like a 3D? Uh, no, like it a, would blow air towards you. Oh, oh okay. but that would create resistance, which it's, means so yeah, it, it would it would slow yeah. down pretty pretty quick. Yeah, yeah. Well, the thing about the fidget spinners is, I was saying, I, I think I swear that they came out of the 3D printing community uh, because they're basically a 3D printed or well now they're injection molded, but. The uh, usually they have skate bearings in them, and they look like something. I, I'm sure that if I looked on Thingiverse, well, if you look on Thingiverse now, you'll see. Oh, it's jam packed full, full of them. But at, but at a lot of uh, events, Maker Fair or just other events, if you have a 3D printer, you're often looking for things you can give away uh, to people who want souvenirs, and. Uh, lots of 3D printer guys have lots, piles of unused skate bearings laying around, so it's the perfect... Well, that's how they used to build 3D printers. Yes. uh, When the first uh, rep wrap, or as it's called, um, project came out, the... Let's see. I'm trying to find. I, I'm drawing a blank on what RepRap even means, but uh, well, something with replication. Yeah, the early idea with the RepRap project was that <clears throat> the printer would be able to be used to replicate itself. So, in 2005, this this guy out of uh, out of uh, the UK, Dr. Adrian Boyer, I think is the correct pronunciation, uh, came up with this project, uh, Replication Rapid Prototype. And he was at the University of Bath. And his goal, he had slightly different goals, which were, he had this idea that there's a lot of third world countries or even just kind of... No, 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 developing countries. Developing countries. Third world countries, you mean like the Midwest? Yeah. Um, whatever that they they don't have manufacturing capacity that even we would um you know even places where we think we might not have manufacturing capacity where they are it's it's just non-existent Mm -hmm. so the idea was that if you could build a printer that could replicate itself then you could bring in one printer into a community and they could use that printer to make a, a copy of it and then that second printer could be then given to another community and eventually you'd be able to, through replication, just build an industry around that. And, and it wasn't just about building the printers. They were also looking at materials. They had found a way to make one of the common materials, PLA, polylactic acid, I think is what it stands yep. for. Um, they were experimenting with making it out of milk instead of 
in the U.S., it's mostly made from corn-based products. And Everything is made from corn in this country. Yeah. In South America, <laughs> because they Because we use, subsidize the corn producers. Yeah. In uh, South America, they'll use sugar, uh, you know, but it's... it's the the problem was they struggled a lot with they they could get the mechanical aspects to be easily um, replicated, but the electronics never they just I mean it's kind of a pipe dream is like Star Trek or something to think that you'd be able to just have electronics that could build a copy of itself. I I'd see electronics actually from a machine standpoint you can probably turn a three D printer into like a rudimentary pick and place, but like. The stepper motors. Yeah. The stepper motors, stepper drivers. I mean, just the circuits. How, how so would you... So your point is it's not truly self-replicating. Uh, well, my point is that they they were never able to achieve full replication. Like when I look at a rep rat, it's like, oh, look, it's like a bunch of like threaded rod from the hardware store with a few 3D printed parts connecting at the elbows. Yeah. The Well, the early designs... They were using a combination of parts they could get at a hardware store. But even if you think about that, parts that you can find at a hardware store increases the likelihood that you'd be able to find those parts in, say, Central America or you know parts of Africa, where the odds of finding a you know highly machined, you know, mix six, you know, aluminum machine grade, whatever, you know, it's just not going to exist at all. Right. Uh, so I believe the ideals were good and out of it, and well, the ideals were good because if it, if it hadn't happened, I don't think we'd have 3d printing the way we do today because, you know, we're talking, you know, he started in 2005. I started doing this in 2009 and back then you didn't even know anyone who had a 3d printer. So just getting the parts, even though replication was the idea, how do you replicate something when you don't even have someone to give you that first generation of parts? Mm. Uh, so back then, you would build things however you could. And one of the, there was another kind of grade of machine we call them rep straps, or kind of the idea of a bootstrap pulling you up by your bootstraps. So build a machine that is very crude, but it's just good enough to build the parts that you need for the next generation yep. of machine. And, uh, that, and at that point, we didn't have um, barrels, nozzles, heater cartridges. And none of this stuff existed that people can just, you know, heck, you can go on Amazon now and buy it. I mean, we can go in a micro center and buy these things. Back then, it just didn't exist. So you would go to the hardware store and buy a... Uh, like a TIG welding nozzle and wrap some nichrome wire around it and put some <laughs> this like hardening clay paste stuff on there. You'd pump about, I don't know, you know, seven amps into the thing and you could heat plastic. And the plastic we were using was, it was available in the industry and it was used for plastic welding, which I had never actually seen up to that point. I, to be honest, I've not actually seen a plastic welding rig. So I, I don't know what it looks like. I know that some of them use sticks, kind of like a stick welder. Mm -hmm. um, but I think they work more like like a... I actually don't know what the principle is behind a plastic welder. but It's a uh, friction welding. Yeah. So they take the stick and they spin it really yeah, fast. Yeah, you can do it with a Dremel. And it kind of mm -hmm. melts into it. Okay. Yeah, yeah and 
and I was able to buy a spool of plastic from I don't know, some company that usually supplied plastic welding and, and, and then just piecing things together. And the thing is, the leap in how well they've worked how well 3D printers work between then and now is, is just outstanding because... Yeah, how was your first printer built? My, <laughs> my first printer was built... Uh, I used I used uh, a, a laser-cut uh, acrylic pieces, and Ben actually cut the acrylic pieces for me. And I used uh, NEMA 23 uh, motors, and they were direct drive. So it, it wasn't particularly fast, uh, I think when I got it done, it was about six millimeters per I second. Lost ball lead screws instead of belts. It wasn't even that. I just I just took a uh, a threaded rod, a and not even a machine thread, just a you know. What you can get at Home Depot. Yeah, yeah, and and a captive nut. So I basically had a, <laughs> a nut that I that I you know bolted to the acrylic platform. So when the shaft would turn. The nut had nowhere to go, so it would pull the platform in whichever direction. And to join it, I think I just used some like like rubber tubing or something to the shaft of the of the stepper mortar. And it, it so that direct drive, although it has a lot of torque, it it has no speed at all. And I was trying to figure out ways of making it faster, so I switched to a unipolar stepper mortars and got some unipolar drivers. And at that point, I was able to get it up to about nine millimeters per second. Um, the stand was made out of plumbing parts. It's it's very, very crude. But again, it only had to be good enough to print the parts for the its replacement. You um, have one purpose. <laughs> yeah. 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 Asexual reproduction. <laughs> what if we made that... <laughs> No, I'm not going to make you do that. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's like being at a company and having to train your own replacement. Yeah, yeah, that, well, yeah there you go. And and, so and wait, wait, do you have pictures of this? I do have pictures of it. Oh, yes. Okay, we're going to need those. You still have the original part we printed. Remember that? Yes. And so uh, Ben came to visit, and I was after I because I built this thing using parts that he had laser cut for me, and. He was interested in seeing it, and and at the time I didn't really have anything to print that that I had done, and and the software back then was a nightmare too. We used this software called Skyneforge, and every everything was difficult. I everything mean, was crude, and yeah, yeah. It, it just it's hard to even quantify. People how, don't know how easy they have it now. Yeah. Um, but Ben Ben was looking at for build when he was building his Bill Paxton pinball. We talked about having a toy. Of the Apollo module, command module, the command module. So he using, uh, I think it was SketchUp. Yes, <laughs> designed a command module. Wait, with uh, what, uh, what, what version of SketchUp was it at that time? I don't remember. It would have been two thousand nine. So, so that's like that's like way early SketchUp. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That was back when they were owned by Google before they sold them back to another company or whatever. And that was back when they had direct uh, DXF. Uh, support when you could you could do things in between DXF. That is now a paid feature. Oh no! Really? Yeah. yeah, that's too bad. They they, they got you with that one. Uh, yeah. So Ben designed the command module and and I printed it, 
it turned out awful. It, it was just <laughs> awful. I mean, uh, there's no. And yet you, you, kept still, it. you still have that print. I do. I do have but the you know, print. It's funny. Like Chris reprinted it recently, right? Yes. So you have the comparison of like, okay, here's the same model printed on a DIY 2009 3D printer versus like a modern 3D printer. You can see it's like it was not the model's fault. It was the printer's <laughs> fault. But it's amazing because it, you can see the evolution that it's happened. That's really cool. Yeah. And and the part of the part of the challenge was and it, it's funny because back then uh, I was blazing territory at least for me I was blazing territory I didn't know anyone who I could go to for advice so often I would just assume that other people who were doing it just knew what they were doing and I didn't <laughs> and therefore I assumed if someone if I could get a component from someone else it would be superior to anything I could build myself. So I built the printer, but I decided that the extruder was the voodoo part to me, and I thought it made sense to buy that or to get a design from someone else who would know how to do that and, and, and in theory do it well. And in that case, I, I ended up getting the extruder design from MakerBot at the time, which in between had started producing their cupcake cupcake printer. So I thought they must know what they're doing. That was when it was still DC motors, right? Yes, yeah, the big DC gear motor on it. And I just thought, well, they must know what they're doing because they're a company and they have a product and I'm not. So, And in retrospect, that is why the prints turned out as bad as they did was <laughs> because their design was so awful. Um, <laughs> in that generation, I mean, you know, because yeah. it was pretty crude. Because eventually I built a better printer and I tried to reuse that part and I still had terrible results. And then I went to a company called Maker Gear and bought replacement parts for my extruder from them. Mm. And as soon as I did that, it was as you know, as if someone waved a magic wand over my, my machine and the prints started coming out good. And I keep thinking occasionally I'd like to build a brand new uh, extruder and attach it to my old machine just to close the loop on that, you know, oh, to you, say your old water yeah, pipe even machine? if it, even if it only he runs, still has it. it's even if basement. it only runs nine millimeters per second, just to be able to say, look, it, it produces very good results, very, and very slowly. That to the, so you have the original print, the modern 3d printer print, and you could print a new print Say, okay, here are the three differences. Yeah. And actually, can you send me the model that I, I love the print on my, Open. Absolutely, yeah. yes. It, it it doesn't show up as well. On a modern printer, it starts showing the weakness in the model because mm -hmm. the whatever we use to slice it, it produced the curves aren't full curves. You know? Oh, that's actually a SketchUp problem. Oh, okay. Yeah, so in SketchUp, when you draw a circle, it'll automatically default to 24 segments per circle. Got it. So Ooh. for small circles, that's okay, but when you get to large circles... You start getting the thing's segments. not that big. It's probably like what twenty millimeters across diameter. Uh, uh, that sounds about right. Maybe maybe it's a yeah, little. That's when you that's start seeing. Larger. That's when yeah, you start like, seeing segments. And yeah. so, like when I did the the Jeep air filter, that's actually like one hundred twenty eight segments for a circle. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The the, the interesting thing is w when all this stuff started popping probably 2010, 2011, when it started getting the news, people kind of assumed that 3D printing just appeared. 
in, you know, the late aughts, I guess. <laughs> or no, that would be not for another 80 years or something. Um, but around, you know, the end of 2000, around 2010, the there's, this, there's, there's this perception. No, aughts is correct. Yeah. Two zero zero zero. That's correct. Um, it's like when they have like, they have like <laughs> double aught box shot. It's like zero zero and then a number. Double right. aught means double zeros. Right, right, right. Two double aught eight. Right, yeah. yeah. Two zero zero eight. <laughs> double aught aughts. But, but the actual kind of technology behind the 3D printing we're talking about, which is the FDM, the fused the, deposition modeling. Yeah. The, the, that, that was developed back in the 80s. And uh, and the company that eventually held a lot, held and holds a lot of patents on that is Stratasys, and so and there are, there are a lot of if someone's looking to buy a commercial three D printing unit, odds are that's what they're looking at, or hmm. um, they're they're you know pretty popular units, and and that's the other thing that's led to some of the explosion in 3D printing is a lot of the patents are starting to expire now. And so a lot of commercial entities are more willing. It's one thing for a bunch of hobbyists to build something in the basement. You might not be concerned about patents, but if you're a company trying to sell a product, you're not too keen to jump into a market where you know you're going to step on patents that belong to a, that are active patents. Right. So the expiration of a lot of those patents have helped a lot of uh, development of 3D printing. 3D printing is awesome. So you're so basically the hobbyists, or at least the companies, are basically waiting for patents to expire. It's like the explosion in um, the uh, Nintendo Nintendo on a chip NOACs. Yep, which was huge. What like five, six years ago? Ten years ago, even. Ten years ago. Yeah. Oh man, I guess that would be when I was hacking Nintendos. But like, yeah, because when the Nintendo patents expired, there was a huge explosion of Nintendo on a chip, N-O-A-C's. No acts. No acts. And SNES just crossed that line a couple years back, too. Okay. Yeah. I definitely think that has an impact, at least on the commercial interest. It also helps that there was more interest in 3D printing, mm -hmm. so more people want to buy them, and, and the prices have gotten quite reasonable. Although I've noticed that, and, and I, I had kind of predicted this, or at least I'd gotten to some discussions with other hobbyists, and the argument I would hear is that 3D printing will explode when it's as, you know, you can buy one for 80 bucks, and there'll be one in every home, and I've never believed that. I, I always felt like, my counter-argument was always, is there a laser printer in every home? Is there an inkjet printer in every home? There, there can be, but there's people who just don't need that. Um... My belief was that the market will be the prosumer market. Sure. Where, mm -hmm. you know, companies that want, that see the value of, oh, I have a mechanical engineering team. Oh, you mean I can afford to put a 3D printer on every one of their desks? That's huge, you know, instead of having to share if one had, that's in the corner. If you had a true Star Trek replicator kind of thing where it's like, T, Earl Grey, hot, and it came out of the machine. <laughs> they could so. They would they would be in every home. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, yeah. If, with a 3D printer, it's like, oh, I have to design a model. It has to you know it has to be designed in order for it to actually be 3D printable. Because like people think 3D printers are magic, but they're not. Like you have to design something that can actually work in it. Mm -hmm. 
So since 3D printing actually takes some sort of thought and some sort of maintenance, it's not really and skill. It's it's not going to be in every home. Yeah, the machines have gotten good enough now where. If you make a model that can be 3D printed and you hit go, the machine will print it. Right, right. If you make yeah. a model that can be 3D printed. Yeah, but the problem is getting the data in there. It's like, oh, well, that's the thing is like, what? How? why does an average household need a 3D printer anyways? They don't because if you think about it, like the amount of energy it takes for a big machine to stamp on a plastic spoon is infinitesimal compared to what a 3D printer will spend making that same plastic spoon. So most people aren't creative. Most people are dumb. They just want like the same shit they've seen over and over. They want they want a spoon. They want a shower curtain rod. They want a drain plug. And these are all things you can go to Target and get. But they but they want the expected spoon. They want the spoon that they're used to. They're not. They don't want a spoon that's different in some way. You know. Right. I guess my point is like if you're a creative, a if you're a creative engine uh, individual or a prototyper. You are creating new things, and the 3D printer facilitates that. Right. The average person just wants whatever shit keeps their phone running or their sink running. or Like their... that fidget spinner you're holding. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like it, it's, it, does, it doesn't change. It doesn't move. It's like some, some redneck is not going to sit around and like redesign the ultimate spoon. They're going to be like, shit, I can go down to Walmart and buy it for, for 10 cents. I'm just going to Walmart and buy it. But, I, but it's more efficient, too. Like, think about it. The amount, of energy con- the amount of energy consumed by a 3D printer printing a spoon far exceeds the machine in the factory stamping that out 10 times a second. The area where I would say that there would be a huge value increase in 3D printers for on, on a consumer level is if devices were manufactured with the idea that they would have components that could be replaceable by 3D printed components. Like if you imagine, you know, your washing machine and they said, oh, on our website, we're going to put the STL files for all the various pulleys and other Knobs things. and stuff. Yeah, on, yeah, because sometimes if you have a... You know, if you have an appliance or like me, you're a homeowner and you find something that's broken, you go to Home Depot or whatever, and they don't even have the parts anymore. Hmm. You can't even get the parts. And when you order the parts, it's like 30 bucks for a knob. Yeah. I mean, I've done that before with my Jeep. And you have to wait for it. So if, if, if... 3D printing caught on as an idea that companies said, hey, we're going to put all the models on our website so that if you need to replace a component and you know someone with a 3D printer, you could just print it. Yeah, that still seems like a service, though, where you'd go to Home Depot, and instead of them having it in stock, they can print it from a file. Yeah, that too, absolutely. I mean, oh, that'd be, be nice. Which like, actually makes sense. Not because having a, and, they could have even nicer printers like a, um, uh, what's the powder printer? Uh, is it SLA? SLA, yeah. Yeah. The, no, no, the, the powder printer is different. SLA is stereolithography. That uses the lasers and the resin. So what's the powder printer? The powder printer uses... Because Form um, 1 just came out with one. <laughs> yeah, it uses, uh, like a, it uses piezos. Not, I'm sorry, not piezos. <laughs> Talcum des- desposition or deposition. It's basically, yeah, it's like your uh, inkjet printer where you're extruding the ink through the, um, through, the, through the apertures. It extrudes glue basically right well there's different versions there are ones that use lasers uh, to fuse the metal Mm -hmm. um and then there's ones that use glue will get into that where it's like hey 
Do you need a three? You know, like I'm sure that if you go on Amazon right now, there's all sorts of things that are like plastic parts. You know, like plastic O-rings, plastic fidget spinners, fidget spinners. <laughs> um, you know, adapters or whatever. Like, why you you don't even need to ship that? Like, you send the file to like a local distribution center and they 3D print it. And even though it's decentralized, like you don't have to have one in every home, so it doesn't have to be affordable for a home. It could be affordable for like your local post office or your local, you know, whatever. You know, it, it yeah. could cost twenty thousand dollars. Who cares? And it could service many people. Like they will print it for you. It's not really teleportation. It's like a teleportation of an idea, but they can print it and you can go pick it up and you're good to go. Okay, okay so 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 here's the idea: Amazon creates uh, biodegradable printing. What it does is it prints whatever plastic part you want. But it also prints a biodegradable quadcopter that delivers it to your place and then biodegrades in your front lawn. <sighs> that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> no, of course it <laughs> of course it doesn't. Dude, it's on the map. <laughs> Nothing makes sense on this podcast. But but like even the military now is exploring 3D printing because if they can not on the front line, but if they could forward deploy 3D printing equipment and if they're if the soldiers equipment is designed with replaceable parts in mind, then, yep. you know, you they would, would be able to print the parts they need right out. And they wouldn't know. have to worry about their rear supply chain right. or disruption. So even if they're cut off, they could reprint things they need. Yeah, like yeah. if they probably designed, let's say, inside their, their M16s with centered metal parts instead of pressed steel and bent parts. They could just reprint the insides of their weapons if they needed to. Yeah, yeah, yeah that would make a lot of sense. Yeah, you you wouldn't have to worry about the uh, the chain of command or the chain of supply. Chain of supply. Yeah, you still have to worry about the command part. Yeah, <laughs> a, a modern aircraft carrier is the, like the machine shop in an aircraft carrier is impressive that, because they are equipped to essentially manufacture almost any part they need on the ship. Mm-hmm. Now. When it comes to repairing the aircraft, that's a whole different matter. That you know, the jet engines are—they probably just yank them and send them back. I mean, even jet engines are being three D printed these days. Like they three D print it and then they refine it through CNC milling. Yeah, it's definitely come a long way and continues to come a long ways. The materials that they're using, the the different, you know, fuse, the FDM, but also the Resin SLA is interesting, although messy, but it's uh, there's something magical about seeing a resin printer run because it's it almost looks like something out of a science fiction movie because you see this vat of goo basically. Mm-hmm. And if you get the ones that are illuminated from underneath, you basically see this glowing object kind of rise out of the goo. It, 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 it looks just like something out of a movie. So we, I think everyone here uses 3D printers. And so how do, how, like, Chris, what do you use 3D printers for nowadays? I use it mostly for prototyping, uh, building other things, experimental devices that I'm working on. Um, if I need a custom bracket or uh, just something that doesn't exist or I don't know it exists until I've thought of it. Uh, and outside of that, I'll occasionally print things just to give away to people uh, because 
everyone always seems to want something that's 3D printed. Oh, I ask for things all the time. <laughs> yeah. No, but you ask for practical things. I'm talking about things like octopus. You know, everyone wants me to print them an octopus, um, <laughs> even though they could get one at the toy store that looks about a thousand times better, but <laughs> they they go crazy for octopus. So I don't know. I think that'd be the code word. Crazy for octopus? Crazy for octopus. Hashtag. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. <laughs> send that in with your address to podcast at macfab.com and we'll send you some cool swag. Yep. So, Ben, yes. what do you use 3D printers for? They're great for prototyping. I use them all the time. There's a bug on me again. I have seven or eight 3D printers. I can't quite remember how many. I can't I, imagine how loud that room is. What I love about 3D printers is like you can design something like whatever, like a fidget, a fidget spinner, whatever you're designing. And you can like send it to the printer, and then while it's printing, you can design the next iteration of it. So when that one's done printing, you like pull it off the printer, see what you did wrong, and then work it into your next design. It's so quickly iterative that I love it. You can like just keep pounding things out like one after the other. Um, I, when I first saw 3D printers, like probably 2009, 2010, you know, like Maker Fairs, all they would do with them at the demonstrations is like print bottle openers and keychains and all this other BS. I'm like, oh, that's cute. But until I started using one for myself, I, you know, I thought they were kind of a gimmick, but I'm like, this is amazing. Like once I realized what they could do, like once I realized their potential, and now, I mean, I would still probably keep my laser cutter above a 3D printer, you know, like if I was in some sort of Sophie's Choice thing where they put a gun to my head. <laughs> um, CNC, 3D printer, or laser cutter? Uh, CNC would go first. Yeah, same Then here. the 3D printer, then the laser cutter. Laser cutter is like cold dead fingers. <laughs> <laughs> laser cutters, I really like. I have an Epilogue Mini Helix, a 40 watt. I really love it. It's great. It's fast. That's the big thing with 3D printing. It's not super fast. Yeah. But it is nice that you can like, okay, I'm going to print this part. I can go to lunch and come come back. It's done. And your building's on fire. I'd, I'd love to see like, <laughs> well, I'm, I, I know I'm sure they already There's a lot this, less but. of that with uh, than CNC's and uh, lasers, though. Yeah, I guess so. I'm way more comfortable with a 3D printer going without supervision. It, it depends, though, because you see a lot of times online of like, House burns down because 3D printer. Although usually there's some other reason, like the one kid's house burned down, but it turned out he was into magic and he kept that that magic. People have that paper that poofs, you know, bursts into flames at like the slightest thing. And he had like a box of it sitting in the room. <laughs> like uh, right next to the 3D printer? Yeah, and then he filled the whole room with one Oh, whole... gun paper is what you're thinking of. Yeah. yeah Could yeah. be. I, I'm yeah, not yeah, into magic, a, so Gun I don't paper? Know. Yeah, gun paper. It's a kind of, it's a really thin paper that's basically got, I don't know if it's actually gunpowder, but it's got a chemical in it that basically when it hits a... It an gets, oxidizer. Yeah, it's got an oxidizer. And so when it gets hit really hard and you can cause ignition source, it will immediately... Ignite. It burns yeah. almost I'm going to Google this. And, yeah, gun paper. And he was also using hairspray to make his, you know, printer bed stickier. And he must have misunderstood something because they say he basically emptied a whole can of hairspray into the room. <laughs> and it was unventilated. So, you know, it's a terrible tragedy. But at the same time, it's my advice to people would be if you're going to print, have a ventilated area, you know, if you're going to fill it full of hairspray and keep explosive 
explosives in the same space. <laughs> or maybe just don't it was keep a perfect explosives. Storm, don't, is what you're yeah, saying. don't keep explosives next to your printer. That was my illusion, Michael. <laughs> but I, I think Ben... I'll make that the title of this podcast. Don't keep explosives next to the 3D printer. <laughs> the, I, I, ben hit on something that I think is really important there, though, which is the, the idea of iterative development. And because in software engineering, uh, once the uh, compilers got good enough and the CPUs got fast enough, it was easy to start writing code in a different way, which was you didn't have to pre-think out everything before you actually wrote the code and then set the compiler off and went to, you know, take a coffee break. It got to the point where everything was so fast that it changed the way development was done to iterative development. So mm. you change something, run it, change something, run it, change something, run it. And then, and it, it changes the way you think about doing development. And, and this is very true with what has been as described, which is, you know, you, instead of trying to get the design perfect, you might just keep iterating, you know, a hundred times before you find that perfect design that meets your needs. Yeah, you design the main parts of it. You print it, see how it feels in your hand. Like, see if like the fidget spinner bearing will fit into it, and then you know you you immediately print another one. Yeah, absolutely. I really like it. Yeah, I agree. It's a low cost solution for finding uh, issues. So, St Stephen, what do you use three D printers for? You used to be the biggest hater of 3D printers. You see, I've, I somehow I don't I do not know how that I kind of gained that reputation, and and <laughs> listeners have actually told me that I've kind of gained that reputation. I don't hate 3D printers. I think they're really freaking cool. I just don't use them personally myself on a regular basis, and uh, the, it, the along the same lines as Ben saying, like most of the time, I've seen them just print. Toys, you know, yep. and and like that's cool. I don't have any problem with that. And frankly, what I'm using them for right now is to print toys. Yeah, I know. So I, we're, we're building we're building uh, <laughs> uh, terrain tiles for uh, Dungeons and Dragons. Well, they do say that so, society will always use its highest technology to amuse itself. AKA toys. Oh well, then there we go. This yeah. is this is the highest level of engineering. I, I think the quote was, "3D printers just print plastic junk." <laughs> And that was your quote. Did I quote. say that? Yeah, that was your quote. Oh, well, okay. Yeah. Well, okay, so I do have, uh, th there well, is a useful thing that I'm going to be printing soon. I have a uh, I have a board that needs a very unique standoff in order to set it away from uh, the chassis that I'm going to mm -hmm. fix it to. And a 3D printed bezel would be fantastic because I only need one. I could cut it on my CNC, but that requires me going to my shop, programming my CNC, spending a couple hours, or I could just give it to Parker and have hey, him print Parker, it printed on his 3D printer. <laughs> so, so it's useful in that sense, you know? If I need one part and I need it, you know, and, and it's something that I can do in the air conditioning at Macrofab, then yeah, that's great. I love it. So, guys, what is to come in 3D printing, a.k.a. the future? Well, I think that besides the normal progressive development we've seen of faster and, you know, new high materials resolution. and higher resolution, the area that is most fascinating to me is where they start using 3D printers for uh, biological items or and I've seen them use modified inkjet printers to print, print organs. Yeah, organ replacements mm -hmm. and 
you know, being able to print biological materials, uh, I think would be pretty amazing uh, if you could have a replacement, you know, organ or, you know, I don't know how far they'll go, but to me that that'll be pretty remarkable. We think about the movie The Fifth Element. They 3D print Mila Jovovich. Oh yeah. Remember they only had like one. They have like a hand or whatever. Yeah. Right in the gauntlet, yeah. and they 3D print her. Like you see the slices coming in. Like that's the OG 3D printer. Then totally. <laughs> I would that was love late a th- 90s, wasn't it? 1997. I would love a 3D printer for circuit boards. Or that sort of exists already. I can't remember the name of the printer, yeah. uh, but it's 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 one of those it's one of those circuit board printers that's ends up being useful for like LED circuits and things like that. Now, if you think about it, okay, people, you know, you could say this, you could say the same thing about consumer three D printers back in two thousand eight or two thousand nine. I think whoever per- perfects the quote unquote three D printer for circuit boards, I mean, it pro- it's not going to work that way, but. Whoever does that, figures it out, they're going to make a lot of money. Oh, there's definitely, gobs of money. There's a couple companies that make, like, uh, pro-level machines that do that. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a big company out in, in Germany that does that, where you can basically slap in a, a board, and it will laser everything you put on solder mask and all that stuff. Um, but I think we're, you know, I, I've seen some CNC, you know, PCBs and stuff, but I think we're quite a ways away from pop it and, and get a two-layer. The big thing with two-layer boards is the vias that go in between. And right now, I haven't seen a good solution for that yet. Of course, if you took a 3D printer back to the 80s and showed it to someone, they think it was fucking magic. Yeah, that's well, true. Magic that took half a day to happen. Yes, I'm just saying, <laughs> it will happen. They'll figure it out. Yeah. But But think about it. If an engineer in his lab at X company... Could, could crap out a PCB in eight hours as opposed to a two-week turn somewhere. Yep. I mean, that's It'll be huge. insane. Oh, yeah. Whoever figures that out, it's just like um, it's like male birth control pill. Like, whoever figures it out is going to be a, a fucking billionaire. <laughs> <laughs> really, there's some truth to yeah. that. Another, another thing that, and I would build it if I knew, if I had the... I mean, I have it written out on paper, but I don't, I don't know how to get from point A to point B on the design. But I had an idea for a 3D printer that is basically kind of like a machine that has, say, six or eight, multiple legs. And it would carry, it would essentially almost have a mouth, which would be the extrusion mechanism. Mm-hmm. And it would climb up a structure and then extrude the material and basically work its way up as it extrudes so it would be used for building, you know, like buildings the pool shark. or... Um, he has no idea what that machine is. But. Yeah. So, but it would... <laughs> you know, if you envision almost kind of like a spider, I guess, you know, but it would yeah. be kind of climbing up. So instead, of, you know, buildings would be built by these machines that would be extruding the materials as they climb up the structures they're building. Mm. And uh, I just don't know how to do it. I, I haven't figured out how to do it yet. But that, that's something that I think would be pretty cool to see. So with that, guys, will you all sign us out? Yeah, I think it's a good edit point. Okay, here you go, Chris. That was a Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We were your hosts, Ben Hackendorn. 
and Chris Craft. Well, y'all were the guests, but okay. <laughs> oh, <I'm sorry. laughs> we were guests. Parker I'll Dolman. Start, I'll start and over. I'll start over. Later, everyone. <laughs> that that was a Macrofab Engineering <laughs> podcast. That was a Macrofab Engineering podcast. We were your guests, Ben Heckendorn and Chris Craft. You know, we're just gonna keep all this in. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> and we were your host, Stephen Craig. Parker, we're going to have like four outros. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Let's wrap it up, Chris. Thanks for having <laughs> us. <laughs> Take it easy, guys. Later. This is episode 75. <laughs>